Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw that his brothers recognized them. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders <coughs> to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. 
One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Here is God's living and active word. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask his blessing upon our time. Father, we do thank you. We do thank you that you have given us in your sovereign goodness, your grace and providence, another Lord's day. To be here as a body before your word and that you would by your spirit take your word and apply it to us, your people, so that we might be conformed into Christ likeness and might be better equipped and fitted to worship you. Lord, we pray for that now. May our hearts be knitted to the truth of this text. And may the truth of this text knit our hearts to Christ. In him glorifying you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed how Joseph has in every section in this kind of Joseph account so far, he's risen to the top level in any given house he's been in? Uh, Though one of the younger brothers... Joseph was the most favored son of Jacob and the the recipient of that multicolored royal robe sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. Joseph still rises to prominence in the house of his master Potiphar. Falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, Joseph is sent to, to the big house, to jail. And yet again, under God's guiding hand, he is lifted up to a position of prominence as a kind of manager within the jail. And then as we saw last week, Joseph was taken from prison to come before Pharaoh, and after rightly interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, had been appointed immediately to the highest position of prime minister over all of Egypt. The dreams that Joseph interpreted, dreams that were given by God, indicated that after seven years of good crops, there would be seven years of intense famine. Joseph, now as prime minister, wisely prepared for this by saving and and storing up stockpiles of extra grain and extra food during the seven good years, so that when the seven bad years of famine came, and, and it was famine that extended not just to the borders of Egypt, but to pretty much all the whole ancient Near East, As the end of chapter 41 tells us, all the earth came to Egypt, and thus all the earth came to Joseph to buy bread. And it's in this way that our author Moses inspired 
by the Holy Spirit as he is. It's in this way that he is depicting Joseph to us as a type of the Messiah. But to the original readers, Joseph would have been a signpost pointing forward, kind of like a, a street sign saying 500 miles to New York City this way. Here's a signpost pointing forward to a clearer picture of what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do. Joseph, of course, is not the promised seed of the woman, which God promised to Eve back in Genesis 3.15, a son who would come to save the world from sin and return God's people back to Eden. But Joseph is one bright notch in a long line, which if you follow that line throughout the whole redemptive history of God's book, the Bible, you will end up at the final fulfillment of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Savior of all the world. The royal son of Jacob who gives the world not just bread, but bread from heaven, eternal life. But back here in Genesis 42, no one quite knows that yet. Least of whom are Joseph's brothers who are now back in Canaan, suffering hunger in the midst of a severe famine. <coughs> Indeed, they think their brother maybe enslaved somewhere in faraway Egypt, most likely dead. Their father, Jacob, really does think that Joseph is dead. And the way, look at the way Jacob addresses his sons in verse one. Do you see that there? With that rhetorically pointed question of, why do you look at one another? It's meant, kind of Jewish wit there, it's meant to communicate some snark, right? What are you doing just sitting here? Twiddling your thumbs, looking at each other while your families are starving. Get up. Go. I think there's probably something a little more disturbing, though, going on here at a deeper level. The brothers probably aren't looking at each other out of a lazy inability to act, but more likely looking at each other out of guilt. Jacob has heard that there's food where? Well, to be bought down in Egypt. And now he wants his sons to go down to Egypt. But Egypt was one of those places, the brothers, well, they just didn't talk about that place anymore. Egypt was, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, a guilt word for these brothers. It was a place, a word associated with something that they were ashamed of. It, it brought up the memory of sin, that sin that they committed 22 years ago. 22 years ago, that fateful day when they showed themselves to be descendants of Cain more than children of Abraham, as they attempted to kill their brother all out of jealousy and all, all they know, they essentially did kill their brother as he was taken away as a slave into that faraway country, Egypt. They hadn't spoken about it since. But now these Silent stares between Jacob's sons over the dinner table. These are stares probably more out of guilt and shame than anything else. But little do they know that this would also be the beginning, I think, of God's gracious, yet not so gentle discipline in their lives. Often God begins reconciling sinners back to himself with bringing up the memories of sins we've tried to suppress and forget about. Isn't that right? For some of us, it's, is this you? 
waking up at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, feeling the weight of sin in an unusually clear moment of fear? Do you know those moments? For Jacob's sons, it was the need to go to the very place they sent their brother to die. The weight they felt. Because ultimately, this story is not about what God is doing in the life of Joseph. I think ultimately, about, it's about what God is doing in the life of God's people, the Jews. The, the entire family of Jacob is covenantal descendants of Abraham. Then we have to focus on them here. And even though this is one of the most dysfunctional families, nevertheless, this is still the family God has chosen. This is God's family. These are the people the eternally wise and unchangeable God has determined to use for his redemptive purposes. And so now our, our camera is shifting away from Joseph. And here in chapter 42 goes back to the sons of Jacob to show us how God is still graciously working in these these numbskulls, these, these ten brothers. <clears throat> so that's our first lesson this morning. It's really a lesson we've seen over and over again. Uh, but this chapter, I think it, it stands out so pointedly. The point is this, that God is unswerving in bringing about every detail of history under his perfect providence. God is a providential God. We saw this last week in the little clue that Moses gave us about the doubling of dreams. Do you remember that? That whenever dreams are doubled, it's a sign, says Joseph, that the thing is fixed by God. And so in every part of this Joseph account, for the last couple of weeks, we've seen not only every dream given in doubles, but also, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but in every chapter, there's a doubling of the actual story itself. The story happens, and then they, they tell the whole story again. It's told in twos. Dreams are recounted twice. Events are recounted twice. <coughs> and here, when the brothers come back to Jacob, they're going to tell what happened to them, giving us, the reader, yet again another doubling. The story is told twice. And all of this, I think, serves as a kind of literary clue to us, the readers, that behind every detail in this story, every chapter, every verse, every action, be it righteous or sinful, Every thought, be it wise or foolish, behind it all is the sovereign hand of a good God working out his providence to bring about his intended good. And even the famine, consider that. Consider that now in a time of increased fears of plagues and famine. That even the severe famine which we need to make no mistake about, was deadly and life-ruining, a life-taking phenomenon. That even that is happening because God is in control. The point that needs to be seen here this morning, a point I think we often lose sight of in our technologically modern age, is that we should notice how slow God is working here in the life of his people. He's slow, isn't he? Look, if you sit down this afternoon and just read through the whole story of Joseph, it'll take you less than an hour. But from Joseph's standpoint, from the standpoint of his brothers here, what we're reading about here has been 22 years in the making. 
And again, I'm, I, I'm entirely indebted to Sinclair Ferguson for this insight. But, but he says concerning the passage of time that we're reading about here, that, quote, for 22 years, God has been working out his purposes in this dysfunctional family, all in order to bring them to this point where they can receive the benediction of God's grace through Joseph. That's a huge lesson to learn. We're so prone, aren't we, to thinking God has to work on our schedule according to our timetable? And a Christian, are you able to take the strain of God waiting 22 years before he begins to even give you a glimpse of the fact that his purposes might be coming to fruition? Don't we see here that God is a God of long-term purposes? And that means for those of us who are, who are called to trust in God, to wait on God, that we must be a people who are, who are at least mature enough in our faith, growing in our faith, so that we can trust God that his timing is perfect. I know that, I know that for many of us here this morning, right here in this room, see your faces, it seems that the season God has you in has been unbearably long. That there's been no chance for you to breathe. That God's waves of trial and tests keep crashing over you. And that every time you think there might be a let up in the onslaught of those waves, a chance to breathe and and maybe just regain your balance. Another wave comes, another event just kind of knocks you off your feet and you're crying out, when God, when, when will I get to leave this valley And again, maybe just set my foot on the warm mountaintops of your blessing. I'm I'm beginning to forget about those times. And what you don't know, just like Joseph couldn't have known, and Joseph's brothers didn't know, is that God's perfect grace in your life only comes about through the long and twisted path that God in his wisdom now has you on. He's creating perfect lines with a crooked stick. And he knows God's timing is it's perfect. It's just right. We don't know. So what we do is we wait and we, we pray and we trust in God. Oh, and look, we also lean into the church. This is a bit tangential in terms of application, but I think so needed. We rely on the strength God has provided for us in those times of trials, in those crooked windings. We rely on the strength God has provided for us within the family of God. Brothers and sisters who are here to help us and encourage us and motivate us to keep on walking, to not give up. And that's such a major part of why the church exists. Friends, if you're here and you believe in Jesus Christ, you trust in him as your only righteousness before God, but you're not a part of a local church, you're not a member plugged in to a local church, I want to just gently but seriously warn you, the longer you go it as a so-called solo Christian, I put that in, in high quotes because there's no such thing as a solo Christian, But the longer you go on as a solo Christian, the closer you are to making a shipwreck of your faith and giving up on your faith. When trials come, 
One of the greatest gifts God has given us to to persevere in our faith is the watchful encouragement of a local church. So much of the New Testament is written to Christians to lean into the local church in order to persevere and not fall away from the faith. We all need that grace. I know I need that grace even as a pastor, especially as a pastor. I need God's grace to me through you all, my brothers and sisters, saying, keep going, keep following after Jesus. Because God is working in all of us with different timetables. Some of us are in positions, aren't we, to encourage others right now. The Lord has blessed us. And so we have the means, we have the resources, and we should be doing that. But others of us, God is having us wait. We need that help. We need others to be pouring into us. And so we should lean in to the congregation even more. And so now in Joseph's own life, he's waited. He's trusted in God. And now in God's good timing, it's all beginning to come together now. The dreams that Joseph had had so many years ago, that all of his brothers would one day bow down to Joseph, bow down to him as royalty, What do we read about in verse six? Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Here it is, isn't it? The first instantiation, the the first installment of fulfillment of Joseph's earlier dreams. They're going to bow down to him again. And they'll do so recognizing Joseph as Joseph as their brother and their overlord. But here, here they just bow down to an Egyptian. In verse 8, we see that they did not yet recognize their brother. How could they? It's been over 20 years. They had last seen him when he was barely 17. Now he's pushing 40. He's clean shaven, dressed in all the garb and all the makeup of a royal Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. You think, well, wouldn't he have been clean shaven at 17? Friends, you don't know uh, our, our Middle Eastern brothers. I remember going to high school uh, as a young 14-year-old and, and seeing a sophomore with a full beard uh, saying, wow, who is that guy? <clears throat> now he's my close brother. <clears throat> Joseph looks completely different. It's been 22 years since he's seen his brothers. And what's absolutely, I think, enthralling here is the way in which Joseph wisely and in such a constrained way, he controls the entire situation, doesn't he? Think about it. If you were in Joseph's spot, wouldn't you be tempted to blurt out, hey, it's me. It's me. I'm alive. I'm here. I'm rich. But he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. In a fascinating way, he begins to interrogate them. Right? And in a rather rough way at that. We'll come back to this roughness in a minute. But, but he is rough. The, the text uses that word repeatedly. In fact, he accuses them in verse 9. You're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They say they're not. But he repeats the accusation. Verse 12, no, you are spies. 
And again, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. Why does he repeat this phrase, the nakedness of the land? What does that even mean? It meant originally they came to see the weaknesses in Egypt's defenses, the weak points in their borders. But I think there's a double entendre going on here. I think Joseph is also in a very subtle and very sneaky way reminding them of the nakedness they caused Joseph when 22 years ago they ripped off his robe and sent him into Egypt as a slave. In fact, the entire interrogation carries the aroma of what they had done to him 22 years before. They had thrown him into a pit and he has them now thrown into prison. Just as the brothers had two different plans on what to do with Joseph, so too in this text we see him work through two different plans with them. Just as they had taken away Jacob's favorite son, the son that came through his wife Rachel. Now Joseph brings up the other favorite son, Benjamin, also the other son of Rachel. And then when he finally does send them back, he does so with the silver coins still in their knapsacks. A subtle reminder of the silver coins they wickedly made in selling Joseph to slavery. No detail in what he's doing goes wasted. In fact, he almost gives himself away in verse 18, doesn't he? Ironically, they, 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 they keep trying to say to him, we're not liars, we're honest men. Joseph's thinking, no, I, I know exactly who you are. And honesty isn't on that list. But in verse 18, what does he say? How does he almost give himself away? I have instructions for you. Do this and live for I fear God. And they're probably thinking, fear God. You're an Egyptian. You don't even know the one true God. You don't even know his name. But he does, doesn't he? He's had 22 years of God's frowning providence, chipping away at him and making him into a man who really does know God. 22 years of sanctifying providence, which has brought Joseph to truly fear God. And I think Joseph is here beginning to ask all these questions and give these little hints because he wants to awaken within his brothers a sense of guilt over what they had done, bringing them to remember their sin precisely because they didn't know God. The irony here is that they think they know God and that this so-called Egyptian is ignorant of God, when in reality, this so-called Egyptian really knows God. And though they know the name Yahweh, these brothers do not know God. You know what I mean, right? You can know about God, but that's different, isn't it? Than knowing God, than being someone who loves God. And Joseph's brothers thought they knew God, but really they only knew about God. That's an eternal difference. I think we can say that with some relative confidence because so far they've never, they've never really repented of what they did with Joseph. They had sinned. Grievously. And they thought they got away with it. And they suppressed the guilt and they blocked it out of their minds, deciding not to think about it, not to talk about it. And all of that is what's known as unrepentance. And if you're unrepentant over sin, then it's clear you're somebody who's not trusting in God and who does not know God. Your conscience 
in hiding from God is a conscience that is not right with God. Trying in an insane way to stay hidden in the dark, to try to stay hidden from God. So I think we can see here a group of brothers who really don't know him. And here Joseph had brilliantly been poking, poking, poking at their hearts and at their minds and their consciences. And here he introduces God into the conversation. They hadn't brought up God. He did. And so God is now presently on their minds. The fear of God echoing now for the first time in 22 years into the chambers of hearts that have had for 22 years practiced hardening itself against that Remember what you did to your brother? Not now, not now. And now God fills the room, fills their minds. And then he gives them their task. Leave one brother here, just like you did 22 years ago. And then go back and bring me your father's other favorite son. Don't you see? The precision with which Joseph is bringing the scalpel of conviction to his brothers is the stuff of utter genius. There's great wisdom here. And it's wisdom because he's showing how deeply concerned he is, I think, for the spiritual well-being of his family. He not only has reached into their consciences to remind them of their past sin, but he concocts what is this fascinating test. A test to bring them, hopefully, to a place where they not only deal honestly with the guilt of their sin but also repent and reverse course over that sin. The test, like everything else Joseph has done, centers on their sin 22 years ago. He brings up the other brother, the no doubt now favorite brother over all the rest. And we see this at the very end of the passage. Jacob won't even let Benjamin go down unless his gray hairs be brought down to Sheol. In other words, over my dead body will I let this favorite son of mine go. Leave one brother here in the pit, enslaved in Egypt, and then go and get that other brother. And there's a clue to why Joseph is doing this. Look there in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Again, he says roughly the same thing in verse 20. If you do this, you will not die. Interestingly, this is the very same words Jacob said to them that sent them down to Egypt in the first place. Go to Egypt so that we may live and not die. Three times this is repeated throughout this passage. Three times this phrase comes up and it serves as a kind of literary clue intimating, I think, that Joseph is concerned here with their spiritual lives. In other words, it's not so much the physical famine that Joseph is concerned with. He's got enough money and food to provide for them indefinitely. But the physical famine is only but a sign of a deeper spiritual famine, which has ravaged Joseph's brothers for more than 22 years, if not longer. So we see Joseph here as an instrument in the Lord's hands because he sees that his family's needs is far deeper than filling an empty stomach. Now they need grace. They need spiritual life. And here's what's so amazing. It seems to kind of be working. Joseph overhears them while they're in prison, right? They they don't know that he understands Hebrew. Uh, What a great treat that is. When people can speak in a different language, they don't think you understand what you're saying, they're saying, and you do. 
Joseph overhears them while they're in prison. And what does their conversation revolve around? Verse 21 and the following. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul. Look at verse 22. Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. This is this is why this is happening. There's a reckoning for his blood now. There's an admittance of guilt going on here. They're admitting that they've sinned. There's an honesty about what they did. And now, perhaps for the first time in 22 years, these brothers bring their sin out into the light. And in the honesty and awkwardness, they they lift up their guilt. They bring out their shame and they discuss their sin that they had committed. What marvelous grace this is. People in whom God is not working in their lives don't do this. People in whom the grace of God is not working don't readily say, you want to know how messed up I am? This is usually the way in which God's grace savingly works within his children. He makes them. He makes us to be honest and upfront about our wrongdoing, about our wrong lives, our sins and our foolishness and our darkness. And as painful as that is, friends, it's always good. Because once you're at a place where you can deal honestly with with who you are, to look honestly face to face at what you deserve, then and only then can you begin to think about God's saving grace and to accept what you don't deserve. We know this is what Joseph, under God's sovereign guidance, was ultimately after. Because in verse 24, we get what is one of the most amazing verses, I think, in this whole story. After hearing their conversation, what does Joseph do? You can tell he's not vindictive here, is he? No, he has to hide himself because he weeps. He cries. Can you imagine all that's flooding into his mind and his heart at this moment? 22 years of what he's been through. And now to hear his brothers face to face in his own eardrums say we were wrong. The last time he heard their voice, he heard them calling him, oh, this dreamer. Yelling at him, roughing him and throwing him to a pit. And now 22 years later, he hears them saying, our brother, we were wrong. These are, as uh, Kevin Hammett told me earlier this week, these are complicated tears. Complicated tears. What we see is what we see is progress. Progress in, in, in a growing consciousness among these brothers concerning God. Exactly as Joseph was intending. They're beginning to fear God. We see this, don't we, in verses 26, 27, and 28? After they begin their journey back home to hopefully go and retrieve Benjamin, they stop to feed their donkeys. One of them sp- spots the money in their bag. And this revelation makes all of them fearful. Verse 28 says that they were trembling. Look what comes out of their mouth. The first thing that they say when they see the money. What is this that God has done? This is the beginning of a right acknowledgement. Perhaps more than it's ever been in their lives. That God is present. 
He's, he's working in all things. And they cannot escape the thought of him. And no longer for these brothers is God safely held at the perimeter. You know, a, a, a nice thought that they give attention to on the Sabbath. And that's about it. Oh, may we not be that kind of God-fearer. Now, God now begins to control and overshadow every thought, every detail, every aspect of their lives. They're beginning to fear. They're they're trembling, verse 28. And in verse 35, as they make their way home and they, they all see for the first time that they've all got their money, the text says that they were afraid. They were afraid. Interestingly, this is the same verb used of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and they were afraid and they hid themselves. So I think the kind of fear that we see arising here, the kind of guilt that is bubbling up within their hearts, though it's, though it's good to fear and it's good to have shame over your sin. It's not enough because it's the same kind of fear like Adam and Eve before them, which leads people to run from God. To hide from God. In other words, this isn't yet the same kind of fear that Joseph was talking about in verse 18 when he says he fears God. This is purely and only a guilty fear. A running away from God kind of fear. And you have to wonder. You have to wonder, why doesn't Joseph ever step in and say, hey, hey, stop. It's okay. I forgive you. It's it's me. He overhears much of their guilt, but he never speaks up. Why? Why does does he allow them to go on in this fear and in this guilt? And for another whole long chapter, he waits to finally reveal himself. I think the reason is this. Joseph realizes that there's a very significant difference between knowing that you've sinned against God, knowing that you're guilty before God, You can know all of that and feel it in your bones and and wake up at 3.30 a.m. and say, oh, my goodness, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, and still not turn to God in faith and repentance. Believing that there is grace for you in the Lord to pardon all of your sins and to find forgiving grace in the God you fear and then deciding to find help in the very one you want to run from is the difference between a repentance that leads to life and a repentance that leads to death. That's that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, right? That there are two kinds of repentances. Uh, a, a, A false repentance, which is upset over the sin that we've committed, that feels a guilt over the sin we've committed. And yet it's a repentance that never runs to fly and find safety in Christ. That's a repentance that leads to death versus a true repentance. We get no better picture of this, right, than, than, than Judas and Peter. Both sin at the time of Christ's being arrested and crucified. Both disown the Lord. Both give up and are unfaithful in their in their interaction with Christ as they give him up. And yet one, and and they're both guilty. They, 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 They both feel the weight of it. And yet one, Judas, is a guilt that leads to death. He hangs himself. He's a son of perdition. Whereas Peter is repentant and he finds life and forgiveness in Christ.
Friends, if you're here this morning and you're somebody who's not a Christian, and perhaps in God's good grace, you have begun to feel the presence of God in your conscience. And you feel the weight and the terror of what it means to have to stand before the living God at the final day of judgment. You know, the most important question you could ask yourself, the most important question, is how can I escape the just judgment of that God? A false repentance, a false guilt will say, run from God. Hide in trying to be better. Hide in trying to do good works. Hide in trying to change your life. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And maybe if I have a good track record of not doing that anymore, then maybe at the end God will be okay with me. Friends, that is a repentance unto death. The answer to that most important question is, how can I escape the just judgment of God? It's God. Fly to God. Trust in the only Savior that he's given, who is the Son of God, for you. And in him, you can have eternal, everlasting life. Believing that there's grace for you in the Lord to pardon your sins is what we need. And that's what these brothers needed. We're still going to have to wait and see how they respond. But what we're being shown here is that this passage is here for us to consider our own lives too. Joseph is a type of Christ. And just as Joseph wonderfully, but roughly dealt with his brothers to bring up the guilt within their own life. Oh, friends, Jesus does that with us as well. There is a roughness that he allows us to go through. Don't run from it. Don't suppress it. Thank God for it and fly to Jesus who is also a comfort to us, who is life everlasting, and in whom alone we can find forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray.